Good morning. I have to get everything in the right place. I'm a little bit OCD, but I'm also a little ADD, so like everything has to be perfect, but not for very long. So. <laughs> works out. <laughs> My name is Beth. I'm an alcoholic. Because of the grace of God and the 12 steps and traditions, sponsorship, fellowship, I've been sober since June 26, 1988. That was a miracle by about July 15, 1988. Um, 10 days was a long time for me to not drink. If you were hanging out with me, it was really long for you. <laughs> My home group is Busters for Sobriety and Destin. We meet at Callahan's Restaurant seven days a week, 365 days a year, and uh, at 8 a.m. So come see us if you're in Destin. I think many of you have been there. I brought my, uh, my cheering section with me because you never know who's going to be up this time of day. And uh, it's good to see you. This is a little unnerving. I'm a little more nervous than usual. Uh, there are at least three people here who can jump up and say that's wrong if I lie. Uh, <laughs> I got sober in Cincinnati, Ohio, and two of those two of those people live here now, and our Sunday morning speaker is the third. And Joe will always have a special place in my heart because the day I, we were all in the same home group in Cincinnati, the giant East 4th Street group of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, which uh, confused people once we moved to the Promises Club in Newport, Kentucky. But... Uh, <laughs> But the day I turned to, Joe came over to me and said, now if someone asks how long you've been sober, you can say, I've been sober for years. And uh, I never forgot that. And anybody whose path I've crossed it turns to, I, t- I run over and tell them that because uh, that was a big deal. Um, here with love of my life, my husband Chuck. I have women I sponsor here. I have friends here. Um, I'm just, my heart is full. Let me see what time. I always bring a clock with me, but I never remember to see what time I start. So it's really just kind of to give newcomers hope that I might stop. Um, <laughs> I've spent a lot of years trying to stay out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I attended my first meeting of AA in 1966, and uh, I was seven, and my dad got sober. And they couldn't afford a sitter every week. So I got to go with them to the Friday night Hamilton, Ohio meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, so, you know, I knew right away that AA was full of old, old, old men. And uh, (laughs) they drank coffee and ate donuts and smoked a lot. It was more anonymous back then because everybody smoked indoors so you couldn't see 10 feet away. But I knew it was full of old people because I went every Friday night. You know, I was the kid coloring over in the corner. And uh, so I did not grow up really with active alcoholism in my house. My mom isn't alcoholic. Well, wasn't. She died in 2017. But, you know, she was one of those people that would drink two drinks and get sleepy. And she would stop. I mean, now we know you can push through that. But... (laughs) And they say we have no willpower. (laughs) I was an only child, and I grew up in Oxford, Ohio, and that was my first resentment. I did not want to be from Ohio. I was born in Northern California, and uh, you could tell looking at a map that Northern California was way cooler than Ohio. And, um, you know, I just, I I always tell it because it's true. The first day of first grade, I'm sitting in school, and there's a big map of the United States on the wall, and I'm looking at California where I was supposed to be because I was born out there, but they moved back to Ohio when I was two and a half. And uh, and I'm Texas looked over. I'm looking at oceans and you know the Gulf of Mexico and there's palm trees and, and then there was Ohio, and uh, I just I remember looking at the map and thinking you could tell looking at a map that nothing is happening in Ohio, you know. I mean we didn't even the history because I, I love the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and as near as I can tell Ohio defended Lake Erie against the Canadians once and you know. <laughs> What I didn't know is I was already restless, irritable, and discontent by the time I got to first grade, and had been. I, uh, I was an only child. To this day, my favorite, favorite promise in the big book is the one that says we can be alone at perfect peace and ease, because I couldn't. I could not. If I was alone in a room, it was too noisy, because I had a chorus of voices in my head. Um, over the years, I've kind of organized into a committee. But, uh, you know, I... and they. 
you would think with a bunch of voices in your head, you could have one that was on your side, but no, you know. And they would just tell me things like, nobody likes you. You know, they're all laughing because you fell down playing kickball or whatever. I just, and I had this laundry list of stuff. You know, if my bike was blue instead of red, I'd be happier. If I had a brother or a sister, I'd be happier. If, you know, if, if my mom didn't work, you know, because her mom doesn't work and her mom sews her clothes and, you know, and it's like my poor mom, because I laid everything, everything that ever went wrong, I laid at her feet. And, and I went through about two and three years sober, I went through this whole period of like, well, I, I just need to accept that my mother's emotionally unavailable, you know, and uh, she who never did anything for me. And uh, as, as Sandy Beach says, the longer you're sober, the better your childhood gets. And um, Somewhere along the line, I remembered that when I was a little kid, my parents owned a retail clothing store in Oxford and, you know, sold high-end stuff, which at the time was peaches and cream and Buster Brown. And so I had to pick up anything I wanted for wholesale prices, right? But Bethany Rawls' mom made her clothes. And so my mom, after being on her feet all day working retail, would come home at night and sew clothes for me so I could have matching outfits with Bethany. But, you know, she never did a thing for me. And, uh, and that's, that was just how I rolled. But all of this stuff, if I just had this, if I didn't have to do that, if you would do this, if you would stop doing that, you know, I mean, I hear people say they just used to wait for the spaceship to come take them back to their own planet because they didn't feel right where they were. And I never thought that, but I really wish the spaceship would come get you guys off of my planet so I could be a- <laughs> so I could be okay. It's like because <laughs> in my world, it's like WBTH all Beth all the time, you know. And uh, there's just this continuous playlist in my head of everything that is wrong. And now I know I was restless, irritable, and discontent, like I said. But if you had asked me, you know, when I was six, what's wrong with you, I couldn't have articulated that, you know, well, Dave, I'm suffering from a spiritual malady that only a spiritual experience will conquer. Um, you know, I just thought I hated Ohio, right? And, uh, and, and I have learned to add to that. I spoke in Georgia years ago, and, and Bill Sanders goes, I always try to take away something from everybody's talk, and well, I'm relatively certain that Beth is never going to work for the tourism board in Ohio. And uh, <laughs> so I had to look at that. And, and, you know, I'm here to report to you now that Oxford, Ohio, was a fabulous place to grow up. It was a college town. It was clean. It was safe. Everybody knew everybody. You know, I got my love of sports there. Nobody locked their car. Nobody locked their door. And my friends and I in first and second grade could walk across town to go to a college football game without fear of harm or abduction. You know, good, solid Midwestern values. I I never did get over the winter part of it all. I'm just not a cold-weather person. But it was a great place to grow up, you know, and I had a good education. And, uh, um, well, the 3-2 beer was a little hard to take, too, when I was little. (laughs) Anybody from Ohio knows what 3-2 beer is. It's a terrible thing to do to a can of beer. But... uh, you know, I just never was okay where I was. On the outside, I looked relatively well-adjusted. You know, I read a lot as a kid, so that was my first escape. I could just dive into a book and not hear anything going on around me. And, uh, you know, as I, as I got into school, I'm a test taker. You know, if you're a test taker, you know who you are. Just I can read it once, spit it back on the test, get an A. I can write a first draft of a paper, get the A, and not know what I read, you know, a week later. And I got to tell you, if you're a test taker like me, you can ace treatment, right? I mean, I always came out of treatment most likely to stay sober forever, you know, um, before they started making people wear the little signs that say, I am not a counselor. I, I got in under that wire. <laughs> And by the way, may I just take a moment to say how incredibly grateful I am that in 1988 there were no cell phone cameras and no social media. So uh, that would have been ugly. Uh, although we, every now and then there's a Polaroid camera. It's like, but that's how blackouts were, you know? It's like somebody followed you around with a Polaroid all night and then shuffled the pictures up, and it was your job to put them in order the next morning. Um, <laughs> But I never felt like I took fit my space, you know. I always, I, if, I, if I said, hi, my name's Beth, I just felt like you were waiting for the rest. You know, like, so what? 
And so I just, you know, as I got into school, I was in the honor society and pep club and band and cheerleading and yearbook staff and student council. You know, I just was dancing as fast as I could because if the room got quiet, it was too noisy and it was unfriendly. When I was little, we lived next door to big families, so I would just go to their house where there was noise and chaos so I didn't have to be alone with myself in my house. And, you know, I... um, The first time I went to an AA meeting and said that I was an alcoholic, it was 1983, and uh, and I lived in the Keys, and uh, what a great place to live if you're an alcoholic. Oh, my God. Um, I'm sure I got to AA sooner because I lived there. But I just, you know... I had a... It was five years between the first time I said I was an alcoholic and when I got sober. And... uh, The way I look at it, like, there never was a relapse in there, ever. And the reason I say that is because there was never any recovery in there to begin with. It's real hard to relapse if you're not sober in the first place. You know, I would go to treatment and dry out, and then I'd come out and give it everything I had for a good week or two, you know. And, uh, and then I'd be off and running again. So I just, I never, I was never in to fall back out, you know. So, so I really never got sober until I started doing everything people said. But before that, you know, while I was, so I kind of think of that five-year period as just doing, like, drive-by AA, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so while I was doing the drive-by AA, I would hear, I'd hear them talk about being self-centered. I never thought that applied to me, you know. I mean, I thought self-centered meant vain and selfish, and I'm neither. Just ask me, um, you know. And uh, and it wasn't until I came and stayed that I realized how self-centered I was. I'd lived a self-centered life my whole life, you know. I didn't know that self-centered men, if I walk in and two of you guys lean together and laugh, I know you're talking about me. You know, I didn't know self-centered meant I'm going to have one good friend at a time, and please don't talk to my friend because she'll like you better, and then I'll have to get another friend, and you guys will talk about me, and they'll tell their friends, and they'll tell their friends, and they'll tell their friends. You know, I didn't know self-centered meant you will never, ever see me do anything for the first time in public. You know, I'm not going to try anything new because you might see me fail. You know, I didn't know self-centered men. I will never ask a question. I mean, I live by two mottos. One, it's not all right not to know, right? Don't ask a question. If you ask a question in school, I got embarrassed for you because, my God, now the whole class knows that you don't know, you know? Uh, Never mind it's new material. Nobody knew it. But, you know, somehow I thought I should know, so it's not all right not to know. And the other one is never, ever, ever, ever admit that you have made a mistake, you know, and uh, and this is how a one night stand dragged out five years into a marriage. Um, <laughs> I said for years there never should have been a second date, and then about five years ago I looked at Chuck. I was like, there wasn't a second date. He had a keg party, and I stayed. You know, it was that or move back to Ohio. What would you do? <laughs> but I. Uh, you know, my kids were four and six when I got sober, and they were not in my custody. And, uh, as you know, but we're watching Sarah, because I don't know about you, but I was a liar and a thief long before I drank. You know, my parents, I was uptown Oxford all the time. I was a pretty proficient shoplifter by the time I was seven. You know, um, and so my daughter, Sarah, she just had that gleam in her eye. And she got, she, my mom lived in one of these kind of L.L. Bean neighborhoods, you know, everybody stepped off the pages of an L.L. Bean catalog, very suburban. I was not very suburban, ask anybody here from Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, so Sarah, I'm watching one day, I go to a PTA meeting in the, the sea of chinos and blue oxfords, you know, and then there's two sets of parents on the back row standing up. And one of them's got on a leather jacket, and, uh, you know, and I'm looking, I'm thinking, I'd probably talk to them, right? Well, meanwhile, Sarah always talks about these two little girls, Amanda and Jennifer, Amanda and Jennifer, right? So I get, well, guess whose parents those were? Amanda's and Jennifer's, you know? Because our kids have radar for each other, too. But we're watching Sarah, and she was a she was a better liar than I ever dreamed of being, you know? I mean, she just, you'd say, Sarah, why didn't you put your clothes away? And she'd say, I did. And we'd be like, Sarah, they're on the floor. And she I don't know how those got there. I put them away. And we'd be apologizing to her, you know? And uh, <laughs> so Chuck and I said for years, yeah, you guys might be saving them for college. We are saving them for treatment, right? Because... <laughs> 
we knew it was coming. And uh, so when she was 11 years old, she wanted to be on a swim team. A lot of her friends were swimming. And she didn't have much experience in the water, but we took her to try out. And the coach told her, well, I think you'll be all right, but I want you to practice down an age group, you know, because you can't keep up with your age group yet. So practice down. So she's 11, and this guy wants her to swim with 9-year-olds. She's 11. He wants her to swim with 9-year-olds. How's that going to look, right? She was fine with that. She did not. She was just happy to be in the water. I was seven years sober, dying a thousand deaths, because my 11-year-old is over there with a nine-year-old. Do you know what I mean? Like, how's this going to reflect on me? And uh, <laughs> poor Sarah, all the way, Chuck. She'd come in and just say, "I had a grilled cheese for lunch," and Chuck and I go, "Yes, but how does that affect us?" You know. Um, <laughs> But anyway, she didn't care. She swam down an age group. She'd only been on the team two weeks when they had the first swim meet. And these were huge meets, USS sanctioned teams, or, you know, there's 18, 20 teams, and they run heat after heat after heat. She is 70th out of 72 in her first race ever. That was Saturday. She went back on Sunday. She was up and dressed and ready to go. I would have been trying to get my parents to relocate somewhere else, you know. And we told her, well, Sarah, you know, you didn't win. Um, But now you have a baseline time. And if you beat that time in your next race, that is still a successful race, even if you don't win. And the whole time I was telling her that, I was thinking, right, you know? I mean, my parents told me that when I swam. I knew that's just what you're supposed to tell your kids. You know, it's in a little self-esteem handbook. But she beat her time, and she was happy. And the rest of that story is two years later, she was a state AA swimmer, you know? She swam all over the Midwest. And... You know, she internalized that set a goal, work for the goal, achieve the goal thing. Now, I'm sure they tried to teach it to me, but my outlook on life has always been, like, just give me the goal, you know? I mean, because really, quite frankly, I could just leave now. Um, That's what happens when I have an extra cup of coffee. Um, So anyway, Sarah's doing this normal swimming thing. And what I realized was, you know, at 11 years old, Sarah hasn't had a drink yet. At 11 years old, I had not had a drink yet. But if if that had been me on day one when the coach said practice with nine-year-olds, that would have been the beginning and the end of my swimming career. I would have been unable to get into the water with the nine-year-olds because how would it look and you'll tell everybody and I'll go back to school and they'll all call me a loser. And I realized that, you know, she and I reacted to life very differently. You know, that, that that's when I started to really see how self-centered I was long before I took a drink. It was already in place. I just needed to add alcohol. And so Chuck and I are watching Sarah with this swimming thing, not sure what to do about it, because we're prepared for an alcoholic child. You know, we don't really know what to do with this one. And because uh, we're like, is that normal? I don't know. Would you know normal if you saw it? I don't know. You know, and, uh, and she just kept, you know, she kept going that way. She just, I mean, it, by the time she was 14, we said, you know, there's supposed to be one mature person in the house, and we're pretty sure it's you. And, uh, you know, she got a summer job, and she saved money. She decided at freshman year on career day, she came home and said she was going to, she was going to join the Army when she graduated. Three years later, when she graduated, she joined the Army as planned. You know, she uh, served active duty for 10 years, three deployments. She did the reserve for three years. She met a guy while she was in the Army, and they got married and had a baby. They had the baby 18 months after they got married. <laughs> Who does that? They're still married. They still like each other. Our granddaughter just turned 14. She's going to be a freshman in high school in a couple of weeks, you know. And we just, we just, you know, we tease her all the time. It's like, my God, Sarah, you had this brilliant future in AA just laid at your feet when you were five. <laughs> you just threw it all away with that swimming thing, you know. And uh, our son, on the other hand, is a bit more of a kindred spirit. And... Uh, uh, we had uh, it were, there were some ups and downs during the teenage years with him, but anyway, you know. So what I found out was, yes, I was self-centered. Yes, I am self-centered. I can still get sucked into that. You know, how's it look? And and uh, Bill called it worldly clamors. You know, when Bill talked in his story about 
that moment in the Winchester Cathedral when he had needed and wanted God and God had been there and he felt this sense of God's presence, but then it was blotted out, you know, by worldly clamors, most, mostly within himself. And what I, it took me a while to realize what that meant, but those worldly clamors for me were, who do I have to be seen with? What do I have to do? Where do I have to work? What should I wear? What should I weigh? What do I have to drive? Who do I have to not be seen with? All of this stuff. And what I realized is I never felt like I took up my space. You know, I had to be Beth the cheerleader, Beth the night auditor, Jim and Sally's daughter, Chuck's wife. You know, I had to be Beth something because if I just said my name's Beth, it was there's a deafening silence while you're waiting for something of interest, you know. And so I just, I led this self-centered life. And I spent a lot of time trying to arrange your perception of me so I could be comfortable. You know, the, the big book in the inventory example has self-esteem, 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 and, uh, and fear, fear, fear. And when I got sober, you know, it was the late 80s and therapy vocabulary was kind of creeping into meetings. And so when I hear self-esteem, I think, well, that's how you feel about yourself, right? But what I've learned here is that my self-esteem didn't have anything to do with how I felt about myself. My self-esteem doesn't have anything to do with what you think of me. My self-esteem has everything to do with what I think you think of me. Doesn't even have to be true. If I think that you think that I'm good, then I'm good. Okay? And I always see a lot of heads nodding. When I say that, and if you're new and you just nodded your head, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you have found your tribe. Just stay here. Uh, I, did, I retired last summer. I was a CPA for many years. I worked, so that meant I worked with a lot of accountants and uh, not my people. Um, <laughs> oh, I said sometimes I go to continuing education, there'd be like 200 CPAs in the room, and I just would start to twitch because, you know, it's like they all, back, back in the payphone days, there'd be a 10-minute break, and they're all running for the payphone to check on their business, and I'm like doing crossword puzzles, you know. But, but I mean, if I had said at work, well, how I feel about myself depends on what I think you think of me, they would have just got, it just got, well, every now and then at work, I'd say what I really thought out loud, and it would just get really quiet, you know, it's like, you know how your dog will kind of tilt his head trying to figure out what you're saying? It's, I got that a lot at work. Um, <laughs> Patty may remember this. I, uh, the, there was a big tax law change in 2010, and, well, before that, but there was going to be one year, only, one year only where there's zero estate tax. If you are a bajillionaire, no estate tax, right? So I'm in continuing education in 2008, and then we go to lunch, and they're still talking about it because they're accountants, so God knows we got to talk about it through lunch too. And so and they're talking about this, wow, no estate tax in 2010, and I just offhandedly said, yeah, that's the year I'm going to push my mom down the steps, and I went back to my sandwich. <laughs> And then I I realized it had gotten really quiet, right? (laughs) And I look up, and they're just kind of like sitting there with their sandwich and mid-bite, just like, did she really say that out loud? You know. Oh, well. Uh, But I spent a lot of time trying to arrange your perception of me so that I would be okay where I was. Because if I think you think I'm good then I'm good, right? So finally, around age 15, because I spent a lot of time, you know, like I said, I kind of knew. I have friends who will say they sat in the bar and said, I'm alcoholic, who cares, right? Well, if you've got a sober parent, that's not an option. I intuitively knew if I even wondered to myself if I might be alcoholic, a big book would just drop out of the sky. So you would never hear me wonder if I might be alcoholic. I might be like... No more tequila. I'm not mixing those again, you know. Um, but I never went, oh, gosh, I might be alcoholic. Because that's like, you know, because I knew from my childhood experience that AA had a lot to do with not drinking. And I don't know about you, but that didn't interest me much, you know. I was very interested in drinking with no consequence, um, but not, not drinking. And uh, so I finally, when I did drink at age 15, I, um, I didn't get falling down drunk. You know, a lot of my friends were starting to experiment, and they're falling down and throwing up, and you can already tell I don't like to look bad, right? But I drank enough that I felt it. And I didn't know until I was looking back that what happened, that when the alcohol hit and I felt the effect, it was just like, <sighs> I exhaled. And I didn't know that I had been holding my breath for 15 years, 
until I exhaled. And I began to breathe. And I, and I didn't have a burning bush, oh my God, I'm going to do this every day. But I did take my best friend out the next day so I'd have somebody to drink with. And we'd been friends since we were four. And we didn't make it another year after that because we drank different from the beginning. You know, and I was off and running. Uh, I am a child of the 70s. We had a lot of, uh, well, kind of better living through chemistry was kind of my motto. And, uh, you know, but when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't struggle with where I belonged. I I mean, I did a boatload of drugs except for, you know, an an acute fear of needles kept me out of that arena. And I'm very grateful for that. I still can't even look when I get a flu shot. I'm just like, tell me when you're done and I want a sticker. Um... (laughs) You gave him a sticker, he's four, Mrs. Hartley. (laughs) But I, you know, I start out drinking. I did a whole bunch of stuff in the middle and coming down the other side. I mean, the bottom line is that drugs started to interfere with my drinking, right? Anything that's between me and a drink has to go. And so one by one by one, I started putting the drugs away because I could not drink and do the drugs and nothing is going to stop me from a drink. By the time I got sober, that included my children. My children were removed from my custody in 1985. I got sober in 1988. And like Steve last night, I left my children alone to go drink. I remembered they were there, though. I just figured they'd be fine while I ran down to the corner. I wasn't planning on staying there as long as I did. Uh, Unlike Steve, my son woke up and couldn't find me and came outside and cried. And uh, he couldn't get back in the house because he couldn't reach the door handle. And I will be forever grateful that he didn't go looking for me outside. You know, he stood on the porch and cried, and and the neighbors called the police. The police came. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where I was. My car's right outside, and there's a bar four doors down. Where could she be? And they called the bar and suggested I come home. And uh, my mom, who, you know, was the bane of my existence, got a uh, 1 a.m. phone call to come get her grandchildren. And I don't know about you, but I flew that flag of I'm only hurting me butt out a lot. Just butt out. I'm only hurting myself. And so while I was busy only hurting myself, my mother, with zero warning, became the single parent of a one-year-old and a three-year-old at 1 a.m. when she was 51 years old. You know, And uh, she came and got them, and I went to treatment. I I wasn't answering my phone by then, and I, uh, you know, if you had to... We didn't have voicemail or any of that back then. And, and so it was, you know, if you wanted to talk to me, you knew to, like, call, let it ring twice, hang up, and call back. Because I was not going to risk hearing my mother's voice on the other end of the phone. So I wasn't talking to many people. And I heard a knock at my door, and it was my dad. He had driven down from Oxford because he tried to call me. My phone was disconnected. And I didn't even know it was disconnected, you know, because I wasn't talking to anybody. And I was getting ready to go into treatment, and he used to talk. He, uh, he stayed sober nine years when he first got sober, and he drank, and then got sober a couple years and drank, and then got sober and stayed sober. Interestingly, because that third time he got sober, he did a thorough fourth and fifth step, which he had never done before. You know, isn't that interesting? Just like the book says. I mean, I, I saw him, and he physically looked different. It just he, he had always kind of had that tick in his forehead that you get when your teeth are clenched all the time. And uh, he did that last fourth and fifth step, and uh, he was a changed man, and he died sober and happy. But he came down, and he had always joked about having nine lives and using up eight of them and thinking maybe he should get sober and see what God wanted him to do. And I lived upstairs. His house had been converted, and you came in the door and then up the stairs. And he got to the bottom of the stairs, and he turned around, and he said, Don't you think you've about used up your nine lives? And I just stared at him. I had nothing to say. And he left, and that's the last time I ever saw him. He died while I was in treatment. You know, I went into treatment because they said, uh, if you go to treatment, you may not go to jail. Seemed like a good plan to me because that was an automatic six months for child endangerment. And I went into treatment as all women, dear God. You know, I'll tell you, the first time I came to AA and they said hang out with the girls, I don't even drink with women. You want me to hang out with them sober? You know what I mean? It's like... I mean, in high school, the girls, when they drank, they giggle, they fall down, they throw up. It's just embarrassing, you know. I mean, they're wearing pink in public, you know. I just, and, uh, and I, but I, my, uh, my zero insurance could afford this one treatment center that was all women and six weeks long. And, uh, and while I was in there, I got word that my father died. 
I also got word that the life insurance was mine because uh, I'm the only child of divorced parents. And so I was off and running. The kids stayed at mom's, and, uh, and I blew through the money. It took about two and a half years. And uh, there were more trips to treatment in there to stay out of jail or stay out of trouble. I, I went through treatment twice in 85. Rumor has it I went through in 86. I never thought I did. But Chick Muller kept saying, no, you did. You were here. And I kept saying, no, I wasn't. And I finally realized he was 30 years sober and I wasn't. So he's probably right. I don't know where I went to treatment in 86, but apparently I did. And... Uh, you know, and I finally, you know, in there, in the whole drinking thing, you know, I finally got out of Ohio. I ran off to South Florida, literally ran away from home. Um, when I finally called mom and told her where I was, she, she said, you know, honey, you're 19. You could have just moved. That was news to me. I'm like, run away, 19 years old, run away. And, uh, you know, and that's where I, after eight months down there, I was going to maybe have to move back to Ohio. I did not want to move back to Ohio, but it was a little town. There's only three bars in the whole town, you know, a dog track, a couple of convenience stores, and, and I don't know about you, but I dated at last call. So, <laughs> three bars, oh, like you didn't, come on. <laughs> Three bars is a limited dating pool, and uh, so I was out of people to date um, by the time it was, uh, I got down there in April of 78, and by December of 78, it was looking like I was going to have to go back to Ohio, and as luck would have it, a guy moved to town from California with two of his friends, and I had two friends, and we all just picked one and stayed, and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a guy at Cincinnati, he said years ago, it just stuck with me, he said they should just put a sign at the state line of Florida, Arizona, and California that says this state doesn't work either. <laughs> right? If you see a car pull up and read the sign and just slump and leave, you found the alcoholic. So, uh, but there was no sign, and so uh, he had a keg party and I stayed and uh, we, were, we were married. The two children came out of that marriage. I was not going to admit that I made a mistake, you know, because then it would be my fault the marriage blew up so I'm not leaving because I don't want to admit I made a mistake and he was slow so it took him five years to say get out and uh, he only had to say it once and and I called mom and said send me some money he threw me out and she sent me plane tickets to Ohio um, I had had a little legal trouble down there among other things I mean we had moved to the Keys and uh like I said, great place. I worked at this oceanfront resort in Almorada. It had seven bars and three restaurants, and I became their night auditor, and I had the keys to all seven bars, and they paid me. I mean, you know, talk about paradise. And that's when I went to my first AA meeting because I went to happy hour one day at 5. I was still there at 11 when I was supposed to clock in. They were not very happy with me. They fired me, so I went to an AA meeting on Tuesday. It was a Tuesday night Key Largo group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were nice. You know, it's a little circle of people, and they—and I mean, these, these now we're talking old people. There, I mean, they had to be forty or fifty years old. <laughs> I was twenty-four, and the meeting's over, and they all, you know, came over to welcome me and invited me to Perkins. <laughs> and I just remember thinking to myself, I'm twenty-four. I ride Harley Davidsons. It's ooh nine thirty on a Tuesday night, and I have been invited to Perkins, <laughs> like. I don't know, like, should I just kill myself now? <laughs> or should I get pancakes and then kill myself, you know? It's like... But I went to my ex-boss the next day and told him I knew I had a problem. And, you know, one thing about me is I never got into trouble I should have. I mean, I had consequences, don't get me wrong. But there used to be this cartoon of this guy kind of toddling down the sidewalk and these safes and pianos would be crashing behind him. And that was me, you know. I just, I skated out of a lot of stuff. The only day I ever got suspended from school, it snowed and there was no school. So my record was clean, you know. And that's just how I rolled. And so I went and told him, you know, I knew I had a problem. I'm going to AA and crash goes another piano because they had put the weekend girl up to full time. She didn't want to work full time and everybody hated her, right? So one AA meeting, I got my job back. AA works, it really does. And, uh... <laughs> I think I went to the Friday Key Largo group and told them I got my job back, and then I was done um, with AA. And I didn't drink for a few months, but those of you who've been in the Keys know that's not a real big challenge to not drink because there's a lot of other stuff floating around down there. And, and then the legal trouble hit because we, it's also expensive to live down there, so we just kind of had a little home-based business, you know, and uh, there's a lot of... Uh, 
what would you call importing and exporting going on down there. <laughs> so we just kind of had a local distributorship, you know. Um, didn't want to be a king. Just, just a couple hundred bucks a week and some free product. That's all I was looking for. I thought of it as a part-time job. Um, I told the detective I thought of it as a part-time job. <laughs> Again, it got very quiet. <laughs> Crash goes another piano. Somebody screwed something up. This wasn't where I was, you know. So I walked out of that with two years of probation instead of the three years in prison that I should have done. And uh, and that's about when he finally said, get out. I'm like, yes, I call mom. And couldn't imagine why she wouldn't want to send me money to relocate down there. So I ended up back in Ohio in 1984. And I thought, okay, fine. You know, maybe I should go to AA. Maybe. But I really thought if I just quit drinking with bikers, life would calm down, you know. So I tried drinking in mom's neighborhood and, uh, on, you know, the L.L. Bean people, and that didn't work either. And, and when I ended up in treatment that first time, you know, when I'd gone to that meeting in the Keys, I did call my dad after that because I used to go visit him, and he would invite me to meetings with him. I thought it was cute. He wanted me to meet his friends, you know. But, again, I'm not saying that A word in a sentence with my name. So if I did go with him and they went around and introduced themselves, I would say, my name is Beth. I'm with him because I am not saying alcoholic. But I called Dad and told him I had been to a meeting and said I was an alcoholic, and within a week I get this box in the mail, and it's got a big book and a 12 and 12, each day a new beginning, 24 hours a day, one day at a time, a cassette tape of his talk. You know, it's like my own personal AA starter kit right in the box. (laughs) So when I got up to treatment, I took my AA starter kit with me because I already have a book, thank you, and here's my dad if you want to listen to him. You know, it just is... uh, So... uh, it's funny, um, I had joked for years that he had probably been throwing stuff in the box for years. And, you know, one meeting and it was in the mail. But a, a few years ago, I, uh, I found out what really happened. Uh, just out of the blue, there was a, a man named uh, Dune from Cincinnati. And he sent me an email out of the blue and said, you know, I knew your dad. And uh, one day I was working the coffee bar at Oak Street and he came in and he bought like one of everything. And so I asked him, was he, you know, getting up for a group? And he told me, no, best mixed up with these bikers in Florida. And, you know, her mom's scared to death. And, and, uh, and he said, I asked your dad, do you think this will be enough? And your dad said, Dune, it's been enough for us. It's got to be enough for her. And then Dune said, I just wondered, did you ever get the box? And it was like, I had been talking about that stupid box for 30 years, you know? And, and there it was, so it came full circle. It's like, you know, I knew how it came to be. But anyway, you know, so I, again, test taker, ACE treatment, blah, 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 blew through the insurance money. Finally, in 1988, I, uh, I had one last, now I'm living in a friend's attic apartment. I, well, it was an attic. Um, I said for years it was an attic apartment, and then I realized it wasn't. It was an attic. Um, two rooms, no plumbing. No, you know, there's a couch and a TV here and a bed there. And uh, I wasn't sure I was welcome in the attic anymore. I just, one day, it just seemed like a really good idea to go back to Florida. Because I'd been in Ohio four years. I knew they were all going, God, I wish Beth would come back. You know, um, which they were not saying. I found out when I got there. But I ran out of money down there. And on June 26th, well, I didn't run out of money. Uh, I had a credit card of my mom's that I was allowed to use for emergencies. And going to Florida that week just seemed like an emergency. So I got a one-way ticket because I'm never coming back. You know, now I'm a 29-year-old runaway. And uh, so the credit card was tired. I was tired. I didn't have enough money to get one drink. I'm in the Fort Myers airport on, on June 26, 1988. I can't get a drink. I couldn't go into the bar until somebody bought me one because my ego would not let me risk getting thrown out because it would have been obvious that's why I was there. I'm looking at some, there are a lot of senior citizens down there. There weren't ATM cards and, and you know, all of that back then. So I if you stole somebody's purse, you're going to get cash or a checkbook, you know. And So I thought about snagging a purse from some little old lady, and I knew, I just knew I would end up picking on the little old lady that still did aerobics twice a week, and she'd run me down and take her purse back, and uh, I would look bad, so that was off the table. So I called my mom, you know, what do you do? Call mommy, right? So uh, she said, call me back in two hours and hung up, and, uh, and then she called Al-Anon. And I will be forever grateful. I mean, she had been to Allen, and uh, and when when I called her back, she said, "I booked you a plane ticket, but I want you to know I'm not flying you home. I'm flying the children's mother home, and it's only because we're afraid we'll never see you again if I don't." 
And I, got, I landed at midnight that night. She did not book me a first-class ticket. There were no free drinks on a plane, you know. So I hadn't had a drink all day, June 26, 1988. And I had no idea that was going to be my sobriety date. I didn't have a clue. She picked me up at the airport at midnight, drove me straight to the cat house, which is the, uh, yeah, stop laughing, Patty. Uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to her house, and said, no, no, the cat house, for those of you who never lived in Cincinnati, is uh, that short for CCAT, which was the local detox, and uh, no cushy treatment center now. I'm in the county detox, and, um, you know, and she said, go in or don't, but you can't come home with me. I've got you here. That's all I can do. You have to do it yourself. And she left. And again, I didn't give a thought to what it cost her to do that because it was in a horrible section of town over the Rhine. Women were disappearing down there in 88, you know, and never being heard from again. And I could have turned around and walked off into the darkness and maybe never been seen again. Her only child. But I'm only hurting me, but out, you know. So I went in detox, and the next day I'm kind of mulling over my options, trying to come up with a plan because God knows we got to have a plan, you know. And, uh, Everything I could think of, I had tried and it failed. You know, I just did not have one better idea. I was 29 and a half years old. I realized I had no plans for being 30 because I just always assumed I'd be dead. You know, I mean, why plan if you're not going to be there? I mean, I had been mixing drugs and alcohol since I was 15, add drunk driving in at 16, add drunk motorcycles at 19, and motorcycle clubs, and I bartended places where people shot at each other. You know, I mean, I just should have been dead over and over and over. And I'm in detox at 29 and a half, distressingly healthy. And uh, it was like this, this voice came out of nowhere and just said, People like you don't die, Beth. And I knew it was true. I knew it was true. You know, we have a friend in Greensboro, Bill, Bill C., and he says, Grace is the moment when you see everything exactly as it is. And I knew in that moment that I wasn't going to die. I was going to live 50 more years whether I drank or not. And I also knew that no matter how bad it was right then, it could get worse. And that could get worse. And there were levels of worse out there that I didn't know anything about and didn't want to know. So I had this passing thought, just kind of, you know, I mean, I thought I'd go down in flames when I surrendered, but it just was kind of this pitiful little, you know, screw it kind of thing. It just, I just had this passing thought that said, you know, whatever those people in AA are doing seems to be working for them. And what you are doing is not working for you. Maybe you should just go try doing what they're doing and see what happens. And I had no idea that was the surrender that would stick. You know, they had a 30-day program at the cat house, so I was ready to do that. And, uh, and the guy looked right at me and he said, you know, Beth, you already know everything we're going to tell you. Why don't you go do it and save the bed for someone who doesn't have the information? Well, crap, you know. But I'm really grateful for that, too, because I know if I'd had 30 days to rest up, I would have had a plan by the time I got out. By the way, if you are new and you have a plan on how you can do AA your way or early sobriety, come tell one of us your plan. I mean, I love a good plan. I do, you know. (laughs) My favorite to this day is, you know, one last dope deal to set myself up financially for sobriety, right? (laughs) Not a good plan. But I got out, I uh, made arrangements to go into this hotel for women called the Anna Louise Inn. That should have been a sign of surrender. But I couldn't get in there till Tuesday. I got out of detox on Friday of 4th of July weekend. And the 4th was on Monday. So my, I got charges pending. I don't know what they are. My car's impounded. I don't know why. Probably had something to do with those charges, you know, which in hindsight is why going to Florida seemed like such a good idea that day. And, you know, I can't do anything. I can't get my car till Tuesday. I can't find out what the charges are till Tuesday. I can't get in the Anna Louise Inn until Tuesday. And it's Friday, and I'm out of detox. And I knew if I went where I lived, I would drink. I knew that. And so I managed to scrape up enough money to get a, a hotel room and a cheap hotel's a loose term for the Drake Motel on Reading Road. But, um, you know, that's where I went because they had a pool and no bar. And the bus stopped right in front. So I could just walk out, get on the bus, ride it straight down Reading Road, and walk a block to the AA clubhouse. And if I needed a bus transfer, you'd probably have another speaker because I just was done. You know, and I, uh, I almost didn't go to a meeting the first night because, you know, I mean, the committee's in session. It's like, we've been going to meetings all week. You could take a day off, right? And one voice in my head said, well, you know, you skip meetings before and you drank. Maybe you should just go. 
So I got on the bus and I wrote it down and and I walked up on the porch and one of my favorite bartenders was standing on the porch at 405 Oak Street. We looked at each other and said, I thought you were dead. Um, she was two years sober and she just figured I was dead. And, uh, you know, and I went in and it... One of the things that happened when I was in treatment that very first time after my kids had been taken is as I sobered up, I started realizing that I was glad that my kids were at my mom's. You know, I didn't really want them back. You know, I knew I was a horrible mother. I knew I couldn't do. And at my mom's house, they got breakfast at breakfast time. You know, they got to school having had breakfast. They got there in clean clothes. She remembered to pick them up later. You know, they got dinner at dinner time. They got a bath. She read a story to them every single night, you know. And it's not that I never did any of that, but I couldn't do it all on a daily basis. There was no way. And so I was relieved that she had them. And I, but if you, you know, for somebody who doesn't like to look bad, that's bad news. So if you ask me, I would say, of course I want my children back. But there was, you know, my, uh, my friend Ellen says, turn down the sound and look at the picture. You know, and there was absolutely nothing in my actions that said I wanted the kids back. That was my biggest secret, you know, my biggest secret. I really, my biggest fear when I got sober was that I would be unable to love my children. I wasn't sure if alcoholism had just killed that off in me because I just felt nothing. And... Uh, so I get, I get to 405 Oak Street, and, uh, and this woman in Ohio, they call it giving a lead when you tell your story. And the, the girl giving the lead told a room full of people. Now, Friday night at Oak Street is probably 150, 200 people, right? And she tells the entire room that alcoholism took her to the place where she didn't want to take care of her daughter. She just wanted to drink. So this chick just tells 200 people my biggest secret, right? So I got her number after the meeting, and, uh, and the next day I'm thinking about, and they had a midnight meeting, thank God, because I was a bar drinker. If I'd had to go back at 9.30, I don't know what I would have done, but I stayed for the midnight meeting, and I, uh, the next morning I was going to call her, and, you know, the committee's meeting again. She didn't really want you to call. She's just being nice. She's going to say Beth who. And uh, one voice, you know, you didn't call people before and you drank. Maybe you ought to just call her. So I dialed the phone. Now, again, answering machines were just coming around, no cell phones. Chances are good you're either going to get, you know, a busy signal or nobody's home. But no, no, she's home, just my luck. And uh, she answered the phone, and I just said, this is Beth. I got your number last night. I don't have a clue what to say to you. I just know I have to practice using the phone. And she just laughed and said that's what she did. And then to this day, that's what I'll tell you if you're new. We are not going to, you can probably already tell if you call me, we're not going to have deep philosophical conversation. <laughs> you know, I have the depth of my shallowness knows no bounds. Um, but just practice, just practice. Because if I, what I learned on all my drive-bys is if I didn't call when I didn't need to, I wasn't going to call when I needed to, because then she'll think I only call when I want something, you know. So anyway, I called her, and then I went back the next day, and I get up to Oak Street, and I already had figured out, well, if you sit in front, you have to talk to people, but if you sit in the back, they know you're new, and they come find you. So I sat in the second row on the wall, so maybe I only have to talk to one person, right, which worked great right up until the Lord's Prayer. Now I got a wall. I have no hand to hold. The committee convenes. What a loser. Can't even say the Lord's Prayer right. No hand to hold. Nobody likes you. Everybody can see you don't have a hand to hold. Blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and I just kind of hooked my thumb in my pocket and hung my head to pitifully say the prayer. And whoever was in the front row that night turned around, saw my hand, and took it. And I'll tell you, I spent the first half of that prayer crying and the second half stopping so you wouldn't see me because bikers don't cry. And uh, to this day, I don't know who that was, but they are the reason I came back on Sunday. You know, we talk a lot about 12-step work, and it's not sponsoring 100 people. You know, I mean, what they did that day was 12-step work. They turn around and just in one motion gave me that message that you are not alone, and we do this together. And they are the reason that I came back on Sunday. You know, remembering a newcomer's name is 12-step work. God, I just wanted you to know who I was. But I didn't even know that's what I wanted. How could I ask? You know, and, uh, and I just started showing up. And I started going to this big book meeting that met at noon. Um, as Jack Quarterman would have said, cleverly named Noon Big Book. And, uh, but it was an awesome meeting. They read an entire chapter at every meeting. They read the preface and forwards at one meeting. Doctor's opinion the next, chapters 1 through 11, start over. They met five days a week, so every 13 days I heard the first 164 pages of that book. 
and I heard the book, and I heard the book. I did not hear two sentences of the book in 50 minutes of pontification on what the two sentences meant. You know, I'm sure those are good too, but for me, I needed to hear the book. And they had a noon meeting on Saturday, which was the same format, but didn't read it in order. And then on Sunday, or no, I guess that was Sunday, 12.30, big book. On Saturday, it was a general discussion, but everybody there was doing the big book meetings the other six days a week. And I went to speaker meetings at night. I went to 12 or 14 meetings a week for a couple of years because I could. Patty was an intergroup office manager back then. They, they wrote me into answering phones at intergroup, and they were digitizing the uh, meeting schedule. You know, it was going to computer, and she had me convinced I was the only one that was allowed to touch the computer. So I showed up. You know, she saw my ego from a mile away. So I got in there and typed and everything. And, and uh, one day I was – I'd only been doing it a couple of weeks, and I, I woke up in plenty of time, you know, but then I sat there. And you know how you sit there, and then you start coming up with the excuses why you're late. Well, maybe a wreck. No, a train because there's a train track. No, maybe there was a wreck on the train tracks, you know. And so I finally – I call her at like 8.35 and go, you won't believe what happened. And she goes, do you want to work here or not? Scared the crap out of me. I was never late again. And I started going at 8 because they opened at 8.30, and that became my favorite part of the day because for half an hour we visited every Friday morning, and, the, you know, the phones weren't on yet. But I, you know, I went to this big book meeting for a couple of reasons. I went because I knew from my many trips through treatment that you should read your book every day. My brain was sawdust. I couldn't read at home. If I tried to read at home, I was either staring at one paragraph for, you know, 20 minutes, or I was 20 pages in and had no idea what I read. And they were reading it to me at the meeting, so that should count, right, as long as I go every day. And it's at noon, so my day's free at 1, awesome, except by 4.30, I'd remember I had no life. So I'd be back at 6 for the 8.30 meeting because I didn't know what to do with myself. And unbeknownst to me, you know, because like I said, I didn't go to learn about the book. I went so I wouldn't have to read at home, and so my day's free. But unbeknownst to me, people who go to meetings like that on a regular basis are the ones who tend to read the book and do what it says. So I had unwittingly plopped myself into the middle of probably the most active group of Cincinnati AAs in the whole city. And they just dragged me in, I, like I said. And I, I probably went three weeks over and somebody said, you've been around before, Beth. Why don't you write an inventory? And I didn't know I could say I wasn't ready. You know, I just went, okay. And I, you know, I got out the big book and looked at the instructions and wrote it. And, and that woman who didn't want her kids either became my sponsor. She heard my fist step. And... Uh, and I was supposed to maybe go into this, uh, I don't know, it was a halfway or three-quarter place sojourner up in Hamilton in about a month because I had to, you know, get my car to impound and all that. And so I was starting to wonder if I should go, right? Because I'm, you know, and I'm struggling with it, and I'm struggling, and I'm trying to figure it out. And again, Patty, I hope you know what an impact you had on my life. I love you. She said, do you need to know right now? Nobody ever asked me that before. I mean, don't you? right? And I was like, no, I don't need to know right now. And she said, when do you need to know? Two weeks from now, you know. (laughs) And she said, well, why don't you keep doing what you're doing and see what it looks like in two weeks? Life-changing. That was life-changing. I kept doing what I was doing. I did the fourth step. I did the fifth step. I was sponsored. I was doing 14 meetings a week. And the people at Sojourner said, you're already doing what we're going to tell you to do. Just stay there and do it. And so I didn't go, you know. And, uh, and I just dove into the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I would have my kids on weekends. And uh, my kids, people tell me they can't go to meetings because they have kids. And I'm my kids did four meetings a week from Friday to Sunday, you know, because I didn't know what to do with them. Now, they were four and six, so that helped because, you know, you're good till they're about 18 months, and then you're screwed till they're four. But once they're four, they can go with you again because they'll sit still. And, and so my kids came, and, and, you know, they had become invisible around me because I was always so in my head. And, and around you, their gaze came up off the floor, and they started to look the world in the eye because you knew their names, and you knew Robbie played soccer, and you played paper dolls with Sarah, you know, and you would, we met in the basement for noon Big Book, and Co. or somebody would have Sarah go help her bring the coffee cups down, and my kids' gaze came up off the floor, you know, and they, and I started to get to know my kids, and that fear of not being able to love them went away, you know, because I watched you guys, I learned to talk to my children watching you guys talk to my children. And we would go to all the AA dances and picnics. And by the time I was a year sober, they, uh, you know, it was summertime again. So there were a couple of picnics to pick from. And 
So I let the kids pick which one, and, uh, and we went. And when we got there, I said, if you guys want to go play, go ahead, which I always said. And they usually didn't. They'd usually be stuck to me like glue. But that was fine because they only saw me on weekends. And that day we got there, and I said, if you want to go play, go ahead. And, and I didn't pay much attention. But half an hour later, my son's tugging on my leg. He's seven years old by now. And he said, Mommy, I just wanted to let you know if you need us, we're over there playing. And that moment of grace hit again because I realized they knew they could let me out of their sight and I would be there when they got back. And that took a year. That took a year before that happened. You know, and we just, we just kept showing up. I went to uh, that fall, I went to the Thanksgiving thing. Uh, Oak Street always did a, a big spread at Thanksgiving at 1 o'clock. And uh, I went to Noon Big Book because that's what I do if there's a Noon Big Book meeting. And when I came out, the kids would usually just go play with somebody. I came out, I couldn't find them. And somebody said, oh, Robbie's over across the street. Or there used to be a schoolyard across the street from Oak Street. And I looked over there because right before this, you know, now I'm like, what, a year, not quite a year and a half sober. And I'm starting to worry about Robbie a little bit because he's got all these women in his life, right? I mean, he's still living with my mom and his sister. And then he sees me on the weekends and he's seven years old. And a little guy like that needs a man in his life. So for his sake, I thought I probably should start looking. And... uh <laughs> That's the kind of loving, giving mom I am. And uh, so I come up out of noon big book, can't find Robbie. They said he's across the street. I went and looked out the window, and he's over across the street with another kid his age and four of the guys from Oak Street who were in their 20s, Jim Pence, John Callahan, a couple others. They're over there playing football. The grace again. Where else should a little boy be on Thanksgiving Day except playing football with a bunch of guys? But the real grace was I realized that that had happened for him And I had nothing to do with it except I went to my meeting. And I realized that I didn't have to micromanage his life and find a man for him. You know, that if I went to my meetings and did what I needed to do, their needs would be met too. So I called off the manhunt for a while. (laughs) As luck would have it, um, shortly after that, uh, Oak Street had this thing called All Group Gratitude Night on Monday where area meetings, one one would come in every Monday and one of their home group members would speak. Now, there are a lot of suburban discussion meetings out there. I have my opinions on them, none of them good, you know, and I'm and it's like, oh, great, it's a suburban night. What 80-year-old's going to come talk tonight, you know? Mount Washington night, oh, goody. And, uh, but I stay because I have tried to never leave a meeting just because somebody, you know, if I came to that meeting, I stay at that meeting. And this guy got up who was most decidedly not 80 years old, and, uh, and he gave a great talk, great talk, and he was hot. And uh, <laughs> I told him later, I, I knew right then that I wanted what he had, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. And <laughs> he's over there. We've been married 29 years. <laughs> Now, that isn't really what happened. He says I 13 septum, but it was like a year between that first talk. And the reason he says that I 13 septum is because I'm sober longer than him just as much, um, which I try to not, you know, tell everybody, but he doesn't get the last word after me this weekend, so I'm safe till I get off the podium anyway. <laughs> Actually, we are both class of 88, represent. And uh, so anyway, he gave this great talk, and they started showing up at Oak Street, but we ran in totally different circles. So it was a year before we started, you know, and we started hanging out and talking to each other. We didn't even say the D word, you know, dating, because we didn't want to jinx anything. Um, and I remember <laughs> I told Patty, you know, I'm dating Chuck Hartley, and she goes, that kid? Because he looked like he was 20. Now, he was 34 when we started dating, but he looked 20. And, uh, and he'd gotten sober out in the suburbs, and we're all Oak Street people. So all of a sudden, Chuck starts getting speaking gigs all over town because everybody's checking his references. <laughs> he came home, he's like, Patty asked me to talk at the Alcathon. And I said, that's great, but I thought, I'll bet she did, you know. Um, <laughs> But anyway, we started hanging out, and and we dated with our clothes on. Interesting concept. Um, But we got to know each other that way, you know. We fell in like before we fell in love. And uh, and when he asked me to marry him, we set the date more than a year away because we had some financial wreckage to clear up. And, uh, and as that year progressed, you know, we wanted more than ever to be married. We didn't break up four times and get back together, you know. Um, and, and he's just the love of my life. You know, we still like each other. 
we still enjoy traveling together. You know, this year has been uh, kind of an adventure. We retired. We we were in Ohio 14 years sober together. And then I got a job in North Carolina, so we lived in Cary, North Carolina for almost 18 years. And Destin's kind of Chapter 3. You know, we retired to Destin. And, uh, and in January, he had a mole removed from his leg, and they called five weeks later because the VA moves with lightning speed. Um, but they said it's metatastic melanoma. And uh, so we've been through the, you know, the lymph node, PET scan, all of that. The PET scan is clear. They got it all. But melanoma is aggressive, so they treat it aggressively. So he's in the middle of chemo right now. And uh, so we're kind of adjusting to the new normal, you know, which is mostly exhaustion. Um, but, you know, we also know we can get through it because we've been through a lot. You know, we did, we did get the kids back. We, uh, we moved to a neighborhood next to theirs. When I was a year sober, Mom and I talked and decided it really wasn't in the children's best interest to come live with me. By the time I had a year, they'd been with her for four years in a clean, safe neighborhood in a blue-ribbon school district. I'm in a 10th-floor efficiency on an alley in a crappy part of town, but I could see Oak Street out my window, you know. And so it just, what good would it be for them to drag them down to my little efficiency when they had a beautiful home? So we agreed that I would catch up to them. And I started going back to school, and I was working for her so I could, you know, go to school and come back. And uh, and gradually we we uh, got in the neighborhood next to theirs because they lived in a place called Madeira, and it was pricey. And so we, uh, and Sarah actually came to live with us there, and it was looking like maybe Robbie needed to come. We were still driving her over to Madeira for school. And then we finally said, God, you know, because we didn't feel like if Robbie came, we didn't feel like we could keep using mom's address. So we're like, God, if you want us to change our school, we will. And then this house dropped out of the sky from Madeira. We thought it was a misprint. We thought they didn't have the one in front of it. It was, it was like $68,000, and we figured it was really one sixty-eight. And we called on it, and it was the right price, and it turned out these two women rehabbed houses, and they had bought this little house, and they redid the kids. The whole house was like 832 square feet, and they redid it, and, uh, and they didn't really want to wait for a VA loan, but they loved AA because one of the two women had been Kathy H.'s college roommate, small world, she's an Al-Anon, and, uh, and so we got the house, and in 1993, I was five years sober, we moved over to Madeira, and Robbie and Sarah walked out of their front door, out of mom and dad's house to start school like everybody else. And we went to our home group, and we handed out candy. It's a boy, it's a girl. <laughs> you know, We'd only been married a year, so people were like, are you guys having kids? And we're like, yeah, they're 9 and 11. Is that cool or what? You know? <laughs> a couple years later, we're going, you wanted them back. No, you wanted them back. No, you wanted them back. No, you wanted them back. Because uh, Robbie hit teenagerhood with a vengeance. Uh, we just gave him his own verb. They'd say, what's he doing? We'd say, he's Robbieing. Um, that kind of covered everything. And we, you know, we had some real ups and downs, but through it all, we have stayed in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. When we moved, we stayed in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, because you can't fall off from the middle. I've seen a lot of people drink after they move because they don't get plugged in. You know, and we knew there's three. If you're pondering a move, when you get there, 90 meetings in 90 days, because you don't know who else goes to more meetings than one a week if you're not there. However they do it is right. They don't care how you did it where you got sober. You know, and AA Truth stands on its own. So if you hear someone speaking it after the meeting, go find out where else they go to meetings and go there. Because people who read the book tend to hang out together and do what it says. So we have moved twice in sobriety and managed to stay in the middle, you know. And so this is our Chapter 3 in Destin. We, uh, <laughs> we have this balcony that if we look over here, it's the East Pass that connects the bay to the Gulf and just past the jetties is the Gulf. And if we look over here, it's Destin Harbor. i got to tell you, that's a long way from the Dew Drop Inn in Norwood, Ohio. You know, And you can't get from the Dew Drop Inn to where we are without the power of God. You know, and just so we don't ever forget, on the soffit over our front door, it says, you can't get here from there without God. You know, we don't ever want to forget that. You know, if you're new, yeah, we talk about God. Um, that's the good news and the bad news, I guess. Um, but, you know, when I got here, I didn't, I, I probably, I had it easier than some. I believed in God, but I didn't really trust him to do anything. There's a difference between believing in God and relying on God. You know, when I got here, I wasn't praying because I didn't want him to know where I was. I'm just trying to stay under his radar. And, uh, and what I got here through working the steps is a relationship with a loving God that continues to grow and deepen like any relationship does if you participate in it. 
You know, I mean, it was awkward at first. It's like meeting anybody else new. You don't know what to say. I don't want to look stupid, you know. Uh, Thanks, God. You know, um, but it grows and it deepens when we keep showing up. And uh, as the book says, you know, the central fact of my life is that this loving creator has entered my heart. And uh, I never knew while I was out there trying to be Beth the cheerleader, Beth the night auditor, you know, that child of God is what I was looking for the whole time. You know, just one of many. Chuck and I were originally just coming here to be two of many. You know, we like to just be two in the crowd. And, uh, you know, but here I am. So God had other plans this weekend. But it's just, you know, I hear so many people get bogged down in step three. And uh, I didn't have to find God to work step three. I did step three to find God. You know, because step three at its simplest form is... I'm going to work step four and step five and step six. You know, we make a decision to turn our life. We don't turn anything over in step three. If I knew how to turn it over in step three, I would have had a three-step program. Why do all that other crap, right? You know, Chuck will tell you, he told me he ended up with a master's degree in administrative social work, and he will tell you that, you know, I had a type AL personality. I'd never heard of that, so I asked, what's that? And like an idiot. Uh, he goes, well, I have no doubt that you're type A, but you are lazy enough that you're not annoying. And, uh, and it's true. So trust me when I say, if I could have found God in step three, I wouldn't have worked the other nine. Why would you? But step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So that tells me that somewhere between deciding to do it and doing it and the part that they read out of the spiritual experience, which is one of my favorite parts in the book, you know, it likens a spiritual awakening to just being aware of the presence of God. So anybody who passed algebra with all the substitution, I can just take that definition and plug it into step 12, having become aware of the presence of God as the result of these steps, right? So I found it here. I didn't have to get it to stay here. I found it through working those steps, and I have been sponsored through all of this. Chuck has been sponsored. We have always had a home group. You know, we had we had a lot of years where our vacation was Friday, 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 because we were in service to Alcoholics Anonymous. But we have more than we've ever had. Why would we do less to keep it? You know, we have a, somebody was here for me when I got here. And uh, they'll have to drag me out of here kicking and screaming because I, my life is better than it's ever been. You know, it's like Beth Hartley, child of God, reporting for duty. If you are new, um, we stop saying keep coming back. Just stay. It is easier to stay than it is to come back. We have buried a lot of people over the years who said I could always come back on Monday. And that's not a complete sentence. The complete sentence is I can always come back on Monday if I live. And some people don't. You know, so if you're new, by all meetings, come back to another meeting. But at Alcoholics Anonymous, stay. Stay, you know. Grab on somebody's coattails. Do what they do. And, the, I mean, it's just, I used to roll my eyes when people say, I'm just living a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I'd be like, you know. I don't know about you, but grateful people really got on my nerves when I was new. But I'm here to tell you that I am living a life beyond my wildest dreams. Beth Hartley, child of God, reporting for duty. We'll see you later.